The Interchange is brought to you by Bloom Energy. Bloom Energy is transforming the way businesses and communities take charge of their energy supply through resilient, predictable, and zero-carbon solutions. Bloom's on-site energy platform provides unparalleled control for those looking to secure clean, reliable, 24-7 power that scales to meet critical business needs. Today's energy challenges are unprecedented and widespread. Bloom's platform eliminates outage and price risk while accelerating us all toward a zero-carbon future. Find the links in the show notes. The Interchange is brought to you by Schneider Electric. Did you know that we've built more microgrids in the U.S. than anyone else? These self-contained electrical networks allow you to generate your own electricity on-site and use it when you need it most. Keep your power on during a grid outage. Store electricity and sell it back during peak demand times. Integrate with renewables such as wind and solar. With a microgrid, you get energy control on your terms. See what's possible at www.se.com slash us slash microgrid. Where clean energy and clean technology in general is heading is that you can do both. Like you say, create great financial value for customers and help them do something that is truly the best thing to do for the planet. This is The Interchange Recharged. I'm David Bandmiller. Welcome. In this, the last show of 2021, we're joined by Dr. Harold Overholm, CEO of Alight, a solar provider from Sweden who are using power purchase agreements to make a huge impact on the global solar machine. Dr. Overholm was previously a clean tech venture capitalist and an advisor on solar markets to the WWF and the Swedish government. He earned his PhD from the University of Cambridge with a thesis on solar diffusion and PPA. He is a member of the International Energy Agency's PVPS Workgroup on Solar Business Models, a former associate with leading global sustainability think tank Stockholm Environment Institute, and a former board member of the Swedish Solar Energy Association. So Harold, we really appreciate you joining us today. Uh, why don't you give us a little bit of a background on Alight, uh, what you guys do, the regions that you serve? Yeah, thanks, David. I'm really, really happy to be here and joining the pod. So Alight is a solar power company. Uh, we sell solar power to commercial and industrial uh, customers. And look, really the intention of Alight originally was to set up a company that could create an engine for growth for subsidy-free solar in Europe. That was really important to us because solar in Europe was growing very much on the back of government incentives. And we saw this, this opportunity and saw something that happened in the US, just turning solar power into something commercial. So that's what we do. And the market is happening in Europe, so, so today we're active across Europe. We come out of the Nordics, uh, out of Sweden, but we're active across Europe. We do both behind the meter, which is like rooftops, and we also do grid connected, which is big solar plants and fields, but they're both done with the same ultimate goal, which is to sell the solar power through long-term power purchase agreements to commercial customers. So we've done about 50 megawatts this far. We have a pipeline of projects of about a gigawatt. So it tells you something about the fast acceleration of the market uh, in, in Europe. We were really proud to be, I think in October, we were voted the uh, so the largest PPA provider globally uh, for both solar and wind, which is totally crazy. Uh, we did 90 megawatts or communicated 90 megawatts in October. And there's this uh, European consultant called Pixar Park. And for some reason, October seemed to be in a slow month for others. And it was a really good month for us. So we just got this uh, top of the leaderboard globally on PPAs. Uh, amazing. But again, it's just a really a testament to how fast the market niche is growing in Europe. 
So that's a light. That's what we do. And yeah, uh, looking forward to talk more about it. What types of customers typically approach you from what industry? I know you said it's commercial, industrial, but is there anyone that this model typically works best for? Yeah, so we think, I mean, it starts with power use, right? So it has to be customers that actually have a pretty significant power use. Um, and that's, you know, your average Fortune 500 company. So it's difficult to nail a particular niche, but it's just power means something to them. Secondly, it's customers who want to get a lot of stuff done fast. So the market has really moved from being, you know, just a couple of years ago, it was all pilot projects and it was kind of tentative and, and, and trying out and seeing if this does this really work, the solar stuff. But now that's behind us. So uh, these companies are really looking to save a lot of money as quickly as possible, uh, go green, of course, and uh, fulfill really tangible and clear promises they made. So, and if you want that, then our model of being able to roll out fast uh, with an as-a-service model with, with PPAs, it's really essential for them. That's the only way they can get traction and get important results done quickly without having to become you know, the, the experts themselves, which is, which is typically not possible because it's not what they do. But in terms of industry vertical, you see growth happening kind of in one vertical and then the next because of, I think, a lot of times intra-vertical competition. It's like or inspiration. They just see each other doing something. So the, the grocery supermarket uh, vertical has always been really strong, both in the US, now in, in Europe. We see a lot of customers there. Data is obviously super important. The, the largest PPA customers globally are Amazon, Facebook, Google, these people, and, and everyone else in their industry is following them. And then your typical actual industrial customer with big industrial sites um, that make sense for rooftop is, is such an important uh, customer. We have people like Toyota Material Handling with, with industry sites across Europe as one of our largest customers. Let's talk about the PPAs a little bit. What are the benefits that, that your clients see? I mean, you guys take the financial and operational risk, but what are some of the selling points as companies are looking to adopt this type of energy for their, for their business? Yeah, look, it's a really good question because there's not, there's not one but two answers. So it's always going to be first the money and then second, or perhaps first, uh, the green impact. And I like to think of it like, so you can't get anything done unless you save money for companies. Like you have to save money for companies. That's the universal language of, of doing businesses. You got to either make money or save money. But this is a really a truly, you know, a cost uh, saving product. So just to get, you know, get through the internal buying process, just get something done. You need to save money. So, but is that the most important reason why companies do this? Maybe not. Uh, maybe increasingly, what is really the energy like the the, 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 like what is the fuel that drives them to really spend time on this project maybe it is really about the green stuff about being a green leader of their industry about hitting increasingly tangible sustainability goals like you know science-based target initiative it's just these strict goals that companies are setting for themselves so I think that's why the project manager we work with on the customer side comes into work every morning and, and, and you know just feels that this is the most important project to be working on but that said, the project manager wouldn't get this through the buying committee if we didn't save money. And this, the savings got to be clear today, but also over time. So it's got to be something that looks like a good deal over the long term. So you can't separate the two. Like the, the, it's really, and I think that's the beauty of also where clean energy and clean technology in general is heading is that, is that you can do both. You, like you say, you create great financial value for customers and help them do something 
that is truly the best thing to do for the planet. Like that, that's how it, it's got to work if you want to see a real growth, in my opinion. And for a light on the investment side and these PPAs, what's the typical payback period uh, for these projects? I mean, what, what tenor PPAs do you look to get in place to make it worth a while? Yeah, so we need to, I mean, we, we invest financial money into this. It's not always our money, but it's money that we funnel through our companies. And so we need to see a decent return, you know, a, a sensible return. It's like actually return expectations in this market are coming down a lot because because it's such an attractive market to invest in. But still, there's going to be a return. So we need to see fairly long PPAs in order to be able to secure that return. It's a little bit different. When you do behind the meter, you're kind of you're on the rooftop of the customer. You need to capture the whole return with the actual PPA because uh, you're not really sure what's going to happen after the PPA. So we're looking at 15-year, 20-year PPAs on behind the meter. When you do grid connected, we actually, I mean, we own the site, so we have this direct market access. So if even if the customer wouldn't work with us, we would still have a way to sell the power. So we can live with a little bit shorter, like 10 to 15-year PPAs is, is the typical. But then the lifespan of the asset is so much longer. It's like 40 years or something. So that, that would be the rough kind of, of PPA terms we're looking for in order to make our business uh, work. And from a regional perspective, where does Light operate right now? And do you see any opportunities for expansion in various regions? And if so, what type of regulatory environment or, or, or energy consumption environment do you guys look for for that expansion? Oh, yes. Yeah, so it's a, in one way, a really big question because this is such a, in a way, such a local, on the execution side, it's such a local business. Like things change so much as you move across regions, countries, you know, even in the US, even between states. We work across Europe and we try to set ourselves up so that we are a very easy and a very easy option for the for the customers, for the commercial customers we work with. So if you're a commercial customer like Toyota and you have industrial sites in, in 10 European countries, it should be easy for us to say, we'll be able to work on all of these sites. So we got to set ourselves up in a, in a way that we are the best partner for the commercial clients we work with. And luckily, you know, across um, Europe, at least OECD Europe, this, this works really well. I mean, there are a few regulatory barriers. Uh, you got you to gotta do your homework for sure. Um, that homework can end up being pretty comprehensive, but um, it's it's very rarely prohibitive. It's, it's like you can um, sense a at least a few years back, you can you can do this pretty much everywhere in Europe. Um, but and then would we move outside of Europe? Yeah, we would probably because again, if it's the right thing for the customer. So and so we have customers who've already said that okay, given that you help us with this in Europe, maybe you can look at the factory we have in Mexico and and, and in Thailand. That would be uh, we would be happy to be able to do that. It's been a little bit too much of a a big chunk to bite off this far, but. But definitely, I can see us uh, going into that direction in order to, again, just be, uh, you know, the best provider for for these customers that we want to win. And from start to finish on these projects, what's the what's the lead time? I mean, obviously, it depends on size and and things like that. But typically, what do you see when you get approached by a potential customer from that initial discussion to being able to really get them up and running? Yeah, so behind the meter, when we go into the, the, the actual real estate that's already in use by the customer, it's really quick um, because obviously the real estate is there and it's, you know, the grid connection is there. It's all functioning. We're just going to implement something. So unless there's any particular reason to, um, if, if the customer is doing something on the rooftop right now and they have to 
finish that up first. But but if that's not the case, um, a, a project cycle from signing a PPA to delivering it can be you know less than six months. Let's say three months. Um, probably what's going to take us the most is is our own analysis, and we have to go and figure out exactly how the rooftop works, etc. But it's really nice. Again, in a world where I mean, look at power prices in Europe right now. Customers who come to us today are actually looking. Uh, to save money as quickly as possible so immediately if possible or like next quarter or in two quarters which is a completely different attitude than what we saw five years ago when it was all about you know let's maybe have a long-term plan and let's start discussing it now but let's see what happens now it's much the urgency is very high so the ability to deliver quickly on behind the meter is actually a beautiful thing about solar and pretty much the same thing holds for the grid connected bit if we have a site and that site is is becoming ready to build and we sign a PPA it shouldn't be more than let's say maybe nine months until it's up and running it's delivering electricity uh, we're, we're saving money for the customer but obviously on the grid connected side it's it's uh, permitting and, and you know the the administrative bit is what's what can hold uh, projects back and on the grid connected side how do you see solar being competitive to some of the other renewable sources such as wind uh, you know I mean particularly in the Nordics it's very windy uh, so what do you see the competitive advantages of solar in that regard? Yeah, so it, there are several, and it's a good question because it actually really need to get into some of the details of power pricing to figure this out. And it's something we help our customers do a lot of times because they have the same question, of course, like, should we do wind? Should we do solar? What's what's uh, what's the best opportunity to, to reach the goals of the customer? Um, but the first thing to be said when you compare solar to wind in the in the market that we're in, in the in the commercial um, PPA market is that interestingly um, so wind is typically a really big volume like if you're a m- big power buyer if you're Google or Amazon you're definitely going to look at a lot of wind and that makes sense but the the vast majority of CNI customers actually they have a sizable power need but not that big so the interesting thing about solar is that an individual solar site can be exactly the right volume for them because it's pretty small so the first big grid connected PPA we did in Sweden was uh, 12 gigawatt hours now i don't know if that's like completely clear to everyone how much that is but compared to wind that's like wind can be a hundred times bigger we still felt it was really sizable and, and you know the customer in that case of large swedish bank it was perfect for them it was about 20 percent of their power need uh, so to start with solar can be competitive simply by being exactly the right volume at the right time um, secondly the power profile of, of solar when you look at the intraday detail so it's we always produce the most uh, power in the middle of the day and of course uh, most of it on on the sunny the sunny month of of the year that's a great power profile at this point at least in in northern europe to save money with so wind has a tendency to produce a little bit more irregularly it can produce in, also at night etc that's that's good as well but when you compare when you look at hourly pricing and you look at what solar is saving solar is actually typically saving much more on average than wind at least in the power zones where we are active so and then when you zoom in on sweden and you look at so most of what we've done historically been in sweden sweden is known for the wind ppas we have really big wind ppas but they're all up in the north in the northern power zones and and everything that we do is in the southern power zones so kind of the same thing like Wind is great, but if you need something in the southern power zones where the power prices are much higher, you get solar. It's fantastic. You're actually saving more money. The delta between the power market and the solar production, 
that that delta is higher in the southern parts than the delta between wind and the power market in the northern parts. So again, it's like it's not the absolute numbers of like the absolute production numbers that matters. It's the it's the saving that you create and how you get that saving. But this is you can spend a lot of time with clients analyzing this. I tell you, it's uh, and uh, you can also spend a lot of money on third party consultants to convince your customers that uh, <laughs> this is true. So it's not easy material. Yeah, I mean, on that cost savings, you you talked earlier about needing to save the customers money when they're looking at these type of opportunities for their business. What challenges do you see in the future that could put pressure on that cost savings? I mean, do you expect to continue to see the solar prices come down or are there any roadblocks or things on the horizon that you point to that maybe keeps you up at night? Oh, yeah. I'm kept up at night by my uh, uh, three-year-old daughter. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to start with but uh but it happens that once she's kept me up i also start thinking about solar prices you look so solar is, is the secular long-term trend of solar is going down i mean that's very very clear and there are all kinds of fundamental reasons for that in the short term uh, solar costs can go a little bit crazy they have now over the last two or three quarters because of factory outages in china uh, general silicon shortage uh, shipping disruptions like anyone um, so solar is not always going down but like the long-term trend is always going down likewise power prices they're not necessarily going down every quarter but the long-term trend of power prices is very very solidly going up and, and why well because of electrification so the share of power as a, as a share of all energy is just it's just growing immensely. And, and that's a good thing. Like we all want that to happen. And it's going to happen, not just because of EVs, but because of industry uh, refurbishments, uh, using power instead of instead of gas, etc. So the long term trends are uh, good, as far as we can tell, they don't keep me up that much at night. Then storage is coming into to the equation and in a very rapid way. So co located storage is going to be the standard for all solar in, in the future. We're already co-locating now storage to to every grid-connected project, and within very soon we're going to do the same for behind the meter, and that's going to give every solar installation a little bit more leeway in terms of how to match power prices to to really optimize the saving. Like you, you can do a lot of different things with storage; you don't have to focus on the actual hourly power prices, but you can. And if if it would be if that's where you would create the most impact, you would. So I think we're going to see solar in the future as something more dynamic than today, more intelligent, uh, clearly something with more opportunity for a little bit more deeper business models or, or, or deeper value proposals to the customers, um, but something that just goes on to save even more money and, and create more value than, than we see today. And from a competitive standpoint, do you see a lot of people coming into this area? What are you seeing from that angle? Yeah, so being very squarely in Europe, like I have to look at the European market, uh, it's different from other markets. The European market has, like there's lots of people who know solar well on the executional side, like how to build solar and how to, how to uh, create solar sites, how to uh, procure solar hardware, etc. But because of the very strong uh, government-backed legacy of Europe, the sales side is really weak and we're not seeing, I would actually want to see even more competition in Europe because I think you know any market just needs a healthy dose of, of really top tier competitors to, to work with. And we've, we're seeing that happening over the last one to two years. Before that, uh, we saw almost nothing. So I still like to say that I think we're the only solar company with a real business sales team uh, you know, in Europe. <laughs> and that's a bold statement. I hope someone will challenge me on that. But 
but we really have an actual sales team, actual client executives, branding, marketing, just to go to uh, commercial customers, convince them that solar is great and that we're the best uh, supplier. And, and I only see that with two or three other companies, uh, all startups, um, and I hope they're going to be super successful so we can uh, compete with each other and, and like show customers that this is a, a real and very important uh, market. On financing, you mentioned earlier how the returns are, are coming down, and it seems like the market has a lot more money flowing into green technology and green companies such as yourselves. How did you get a light started? I mean, where did you get your initial funding and how have you seen that evolve as you have continued to grow and expand? Yeah, so I mean, it's been a hassle, right? It's like it's a funding is never easy. It is much easier today than it's ever been before. Uh, and, and I mean, we all know why just because sustainability ESG investing is so much bigger now than it's than it's ever been before. So, so much money is now looking for these kinds of opportunities. But when we s- set out, solar was new. Um, and the way we did solar was new in Europe. And uh, yeah, we just had to p- patch up different solutions to make it work a little bit of venture capital, um, a little bit of infrastructure capital, spend a lot of time educating investors, you know, always, always important to educate investors, but we really had to do it from from scratch, you know. And this was quite similar to what I'd learned. I've, I've been in the US a lot, uh, talking to US entrepreneurs in in this sector and and the people who were early in the market told us uh, that that they'd been through exactly the same thing just spending month and month uh, teaching the financial partners what this was all about now um, i mean being out fundraising now again and like over the last year uh, it's it's astonishing to notice the the shift i mean first the shift in interest like just so much money uh, looking for opportunities in renewables um Secondly, just the amount of people in that market who now know a lot of things about renewables, have been in the market for a long time, kind of grew up, my own generation grew up uh, doing this from from right out of university. And now they have 10, 15 years of, of experience of renewables. And, and it's just, a, a, honestly, it's a pleasure to do business when, when people know what you're doing. And I, I mean, I think this is so similar to what's been happening in, in the, uh, the digital world where you know, it was all pioneering and, 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 and new in the 70s and 80s and maybe early 90s. But now there's this massive ecosystem of, of money, almost, almost sometimes teaching the entrepreneurs the way forward, which just helps accelerate stuff. It just helps uh, grease the machinery, uh, things, things move uh, more swiftly. And of course, that's what we need for, for the energy transition. I mean, that, that's, we need an energy transition that happens quickly with just as much support uh, as, as it ever can get. I mean, it's, it's definitely a heightened focus uh, across the globe from a financing standpoint. I mean, you see private equity funds uh, that are raising capital specifically for uh, renewable type energy. You see the banks, large global investment banks committing money and, and investment towards towards this industry. Where do you see, given, given that kind of shift or, or growth, if you will, from people really understanding it uh, to more money flowing into into this industry. How do you see valuations of renewable companies going forward? I mean, have you seen an increase in those valuations as there's much more money and demand for these types of investments? Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely. And it starts, if you just look at, at, at the stock market and you take an index of, of downstream renewable power producers and and um renewable power companies so valuations have firstly increased very much in 2020 then there was a, a bit of a small adjustment in early 2021 but now it's still a 
a, a fairly stable level that is, uh, I mean, probably 10 times higher than it was in, in 2019. So, and that's, that's partly, of course, simply on the back of better prospects, like actual market fundamentals. But, but it's partly, of course, uh, on the back of appetite and, and interest. It's always been difficult to value renewable power companies in a straightforward way because sometimes the, the, the cash flows are spread out over a very long time. You have to take into account all kinds of different tranches of leverage. Like it's just a little bit intellectually complex. Um, but uh, yeah, but the, but the change is there and, and the value driven by both interest and better market uh, demand is there. That is a good thing as far as I can tell. If it makes more people start renewable power companies, that is a good thing. If it makes it easier for renewable power companies to access a capital, then, then that is a great thing. In terms of the money available, there's still a little bit of a gap in the market on, on the venture capital side, I think, because venture capital has been, as an industry, it's just been going through this great turn over the last two decades, this great turn towards only digital, uh, you know, only CapEx-like business models. And frankly, everything we do in, in renewable energy is CapEx-heavy. Like, it doesn't matter really where we sit in, in the value chain. It's, cap, it's all about putting stuff uh, on the ground or on rooftops or wherever. But it's really, you know, it, it, CapEx is, is kind of what we actually do. So... Getting venture capital funds to feel comfortable about investing in, in, in businesses that, that don't have digital product as their ultimate outcome, but actually have some kind of CapEx uh, production as, as their outcome, is it's still not straightforward. Like it still does, it sits a little bit in between uh, various pockets of, of money. So, but we've seen a few funds now over the last year that came online that has a great focus on that. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's changing rapidly as well. With that, are you seeing any change in the required return returns from those funds? I mean, I know historically a lot have said, you know, if you, if you don't meet this hurdle, we're not even going to talk to you. But do you see, because it's a green energy focused, do you see any adjustments to the required returns for that type of investment? <laughs> no. Yeah, no, sometimes you'd wish that. You're like, uh, they go, well, well, you know, we do these impact investing and we like, we love the green stuff. You're like, okay, so what is that worth to you? <laughs> How many percentage points are you gonna are you gonna invest in in that? But but no, I mean, then they all look for for the same fairly high returns. The big shift in returns has been on the operational asset side. So operational renewable assets today, um, operational solar assets and wind assets, if they're done in a bankable way with fairly good contracting and like you know just a standardized and and um, well thought through way of, of, of doing it can be refinanced both on the equity and debt side at very low uh, returns. Um, and, and that's fantastic because it means that you can, the ultimate outcome of your business, those assets, once they're operational, you know that there's a, uh, an attractive and lucrative market for, for them and it will create developer margins um, over time. So, so that's astonishing. Uh, that that shift has been astonishing, and it's very much, I think, just because of general market learning and much more money coming into the market, competing uh, about getting these assets. On the company side, I, I, we haven't really seen that yet. I mean, as 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 any time with company investments, like what company is going to win? This is a fast-moving sector. It has lots of different, um, lots of different stages of the value chain. Lots of different sub-markets. I mean, who's actually the winner? And not it's, uh, yeah, it's it's still not easy for the capital markets to have an opinion about that. But uh, it's all in, in in the growth is very fast. So I'm think it's it, it's it's changing as well. Are you seeing any of the large banks participate more? In this industry, I mean, I know that they've got committed investments, committed lending, uh, all the banks across the globe have, but are you seeing them actually 
participating more and providing that type of financing for these types of companies? Um, well, not so much in Europe, but uh, because I think in general the um, the European model for investment banking is a little bit different from the U.S. model. So in the U.S., investment banks tend to want to do anything for you. They just find the great way to do a deal for you and package all kinds of different capital. Whereas in, in Europe, it's that is done more by maybe boutique advisors without the balance sheet, whereas the banks as such are typically behaving mainly as banks, like they're lending or they're just doing one particular thing. Um, there are exceptions, of course, and, and a few of the big US investment banks are active in, in Europe and, and a company like Macquarie, the, the Australian investment bank, of course, is very, is very versatile as well. But otherwise, I think um, the driving force in, in European uh, finance comes a lot from from pension funds actually much more so than in the US so pension funds are smart and active and they have strong opinions and they they channel their money through all kinds of different it might be through private equity funds or through hedge funds or through other setups or even direct investments into this uh, market that's been a great uh, force in in Europe so yeah it just looks a little bit uh, different we if, if we were in the US we'd spend much more time talking to investment banks than we do the interchange is brought to you by Schneider Electric are you looking for more energy control, but worry about the upfront costs of a microgrid and renewables? We have you covered. Schneider Electric offers energy as a service for customers like you who spend $40,000 or more each month on energy. With energy as a service, you get customized solutions to help you meet goals for sustainability, efficiency, and cost control, including a microgrid and adjacent energy infrastructure. We also handle every step of the process and assume financial and operational risks. Upgraded electrical equipment, reduced emissions, predictable long-term pricing. Energy as a Service provides all this and more. Find the links in the show notes. Bloom Energy is accelerating the hydrogen economy by partnering with industry leaders to produce clean, green hydrogen. Bloom's electrolyzer uses electricity and heat from a variety of renewable energy sources, such as concentrated solar power, solar panels, and nuclear power, to generate green hydrogen at the scale needed to tackle today's urgent climate crisis. Bloom's pioneering solid oxide fuel cell platform leverages technology originally developed for Mars and is uniquely designed to address both the causes and consequences of our changing climate, decarbonizing our world's hardest to abate sectors. Bloom's platform has the flexibility to be deployed as a distributed generator of electricity or as an electrolyzer to produce green hydrogen. Leveraging scale and experience, Bloom provides solutions needed to propel our world towards a better energy future. See the link in the show notes. How do you see the M&A market in this sector? Do you see it becoming very active? I mean, it sounds like you'll probably have a lot more companies coming up and, and establishing a footprint. How do you see the M&A environment going forward? Like I said, do you think it's going to be active with a lot of consolidation or do you think it's going to somewhat separate into a number of, of just big players that, that outgrow the rest? Yeah, so there's, there's, a, there's a, a broad solar M&A market in Europe, which is very much just about buying pipelines of projects. Um, that's been an active M&A market for, for quite some time. Um, but a lot of those assets are these more classical government-backed uh, assets. In, in our particular niche of the market, so the CNI market and what we think is the most fast-growing niche and, and like the, the subsidy-free uh, market, there's two kinds of M&A we can do. One is to, like if we're talking about M&A just for the purpose of driving growth, like inorganic growth of what we already do, then either we can buy into sites, so people with solar sites that are 
approaching ready to build. So it's something we could put into our own production line and, and turn into actual PPA-backed solar assets. And we'd love to do that. So we're looking at opportunities like that in, in many places. Um, people who sit on an early pipeline. For us, it's it's, it's a really interesting opportunity if people who sit on a pipeline, but, but some of the government stuff has, has gone away. So they actually, unless they team up with someone who knows corporate PPAs, they actually don't really have a good idea of how to turn these early sites into solar assets. And that, that's, that's great for us because then there's a synergy and like there's more than just transaction. The other way to, for us to reach more growth would be to buy other behind-the-meter sales teams, basically people who know how to sell behind-the-meter PPAs to companies like ourselves, but maybe they do it in a particular market. And we never saw any, like up until two years ago, we didn't see any opportunity like that. Even if we had all the money in the world, we wouldn't have bought anyone else in Europe. And now we do. So now there's at least three or four teams that we would truly imagine buying or teaming up with or making a whatever, investing into them. Um, and that's great. I mean, it just tells me that this is now becoming an actual market uh, with lots of smart people coming from, from, from various corners, seeing this market and, and jumping into it. And of course, I hope this, there's uh, going to be opportunities for us to actually execute on that. But it's, this far, it's just been like, we've been so happy to see these opportunities uh, and we, we are in the early stages of discussing with them. And what, what would you advise companies that are, are looking to enter the market? What are some of the lessons learned that you guys have encountered and overcome that some growing smaller companies or, or people looking to establish something based on technology or, or a, uh, a service that they provide would you give? So, I mean, there's all kinds of like these traditional entrepreneurial uh, truth that you could probably repeat for anyone, but like just do something that you feel really passionate about, et cetera, et cetera. But, but leaving all that aside, because uh, I'm sure there's others who, who can say that just as well as I do, but just looking at a kind of industry-specific entrepreneurial advice, I think two things that, that often stri strike me when I see uh, other small companies. The first thing is the need to focus, uh, even though it sounds like the energy transition is, is something, it's like some kind of concept. It, it probably isn't if you're an entrepreneur, if you have 10 people and you got to put them to good use. I mean, put them to good use doing one single thing, just like solar in one place or like one kind of solar or one kind of storage, whatever. Because there's, there's so much to learn and, and to improve and, and to, uh, I mean, just develop in this market anyway, that if you're going to do like EV charging and storage and solar and some wind, it's, you, you can't really do that well. I mean, someone else is always going to do uh, all of these individual things better than you. So I, th I guess the first thing would be to just have a bit of respect for how much is left to develop in order to create perfect products in this market, especially if you like us, if you if you if your market is ultimately a commercial market where you have to sell something to a customer. Like th this market really needs some serious like product packaging and and commercial thinking where that goes all the way into the technology. So like the the classic thinking that's behind the iPhone or the Tesla or whatever. I mean, you can't just, it's technology, but it's also design. And then ultimately it's a way of selling. Like you need to really focus to get that chain working well. Um, then the second thing I think um, is that sometimes this becomes a little bit too much of a, because we do CapEx and we do like these CapEx investments. Uh, if you have the attitude of making a lot of money on every individual CapEx investment, uh, like the big heist kind of thinking, like I'm going to do this wonderful solar site and I may make a killing and then maybe do the next one. I just honestly think that's such a boring way of, like if you don't, if you want true growth, 
if you want to really, really build a lot of megawatts, you know, make a huge impact on society, build a, a fantastic company, just create growth, you know, create an engine for growth, then you can't optimize on a deal by deal basis. Like you have to just find some clear hurdle rates for when you do business and then do it and move on with it and don't optimize stuff. Um, and I'd like to see more of that attitude among my fellow entrepreneurs in the area because I, th- I think there's like a little bit too much of real estate mentality where um, we're looking to do this one fantastic deal and then and then sit on it for a while and think about our next deal. What do you think are the key drivers for valuations of these companies going forward? I mean, what, what are the key aspects that you need to have in place to really maximize the valuations that you receive either via an IPO or uh, selling to uh, to another competitor? Yeah, I'm a bit self-serving here, but I, I mean, <laughs> I really think it's about having that long-term idea of your market, which is, it in my mind, can only be a truly commercial market. Like if you're in some way, what you're doing is some way based on your ability to fit into a particular uh, government regime in a particular place, then I mean, it's such a limited long-term prospect. You can, you can end up making a lot of money here now, but like, who's going to believe in the 10 year prospect of your business? Like you, you really have to, it's really difficult to explain that. If you can show that you have an idea of how to drive growth in this area, whether it's solar or it's, it's, it's batteries or it's charging or it's some version of that, but you, you have this really long-term idea of how this is going to be packaged into a commercially important product and, and you have a strong idea of how to sell it, then essentially you have a plan and an idea that is attractive on the 10-year horizon and on the 20-year horizon. And that's ultimately what is building a real company is all about. It's, it's about building an engine for growth that, that will just rev itself up over time. And, and, uh, and I think like in any business, it will boil down to that. I mean... Yes, short term, your value will be driven by, you know, the actual pipeline you have. And like these, if you have 10 sites or 20 sites or whatever, and, and, and it feels tangible. But once, if you're on the stock market or once you're reaching a certain size and want to want to address a little bit more mainstream investors, we're all, as, as investors, if we're on the stock market, we're all just investing in, in the long-term growth prospects. Um, and uh, yeah, in my world, they have to be actual commercial uh, long-term prospects. And that's, that goes back to the point about valuations increasing. And I think it goes to the energy transition as a whole, because I, I remember back in my investment banking days, there were times that we were looking at uh, renewable uh, companies and there was still little skepticism about them. And it was exactly that, the long-term prospects. And I think where we have come with the energy transition is that people are realizing that it is here to stay, that it's not going away. It's not something that is going to be short term that in five years that the desire for that has gone away. And I think many more investors, financial companies have all realized that, which again, to your point, is driving up the valuations, but there is more money available because people are looking at this is a long-term opportunity. This is not going away anytime soon because this is where the globe is going. You know, and there's a few simple fundamentals that underpins that. One is, of course, cost. So as the LCOE, which is like the, the, the overall weighted cost per produced kilowatt hour, as that cost of solar has dropped, I mean, it's now the lowest in the world. And it, it's, you know, this concept of grid parity or socket parity, like, is it at or below the alternative price from the grid? Yes, I mean, across Europe, across North America, across the world, it is. That means that there's just no 
the, the sector doesn't need incentives. It doesn't need uh, subsidies. It, it is growing on its own uh, right. And that wasn't true. I mean, 10 years ago, that just wasn't true. Uh, solar was super expensive. And the only way to make it competitive was to introduce some level of government subsidies or incentives. So that's such a simple underpinning of, of this growth trend. I mean, the second being that if you look at... So electrification is happening. So we're using the world as, as a whole. It's using much more and more power. Now, that means, logically, we have to build more power generating capacity. Now, what can you build? Well, you can build, you can build wind and, and solar. That's a given. We all know that. What else can you build? I mean, you can't build that much hydro. I mean, there are a few places where you can build hydro, but it's like, where do you find a nice place to put a dam in, in Western Europe and North America today? Not many places. And people are not building nuclear because all kinds of reasons, but at this point, nuclear just does not seem as a, as a commercially viable option. So then you have like this simple equation of, okay, we need a lot more power and we can only build solar and wind to, to produce that power. I mean, logically, we're probably going to build a, a hell of a lot of solar and wind. <laughs> it just seems like a, a fair conclusion. You know, I was going to ask you what you saw the energy transition looking like in 10, 15, 20 years. And obviously with solar being a huge part of it, you say it's it's really going to come down to, to a lot of wind and solar. Do you see either one of those dominating? I mean, obviously you're, you're heavy on the solar side, but you outlined some earlier differences between the two. But do you see one kind of becoming much more of, of a standard versus the other? Yeah, I'm, I'm very biased here. <laughs> but, but I do see solar being uh, significantly larger than wind over time. And it's, it's not uh, on the behalf of any negative aspect of wind. It's just simply that solar has this fundamental ability to be modular it's like it's it, you can build it uh, on a small rooftop you can build it across a desert and everything in between so it just has this ability to adapt to every situation i think that's just the simple reason why solar is going to be deployed at a, at a higher clip than wind which is which is great i mean wind is great it's going to be uh, deployed uh, heavily as well but it's just a little bit more restricted in terms of finding the right place to do it but <clears throat> i think the other big um, aspect of the energy transition that's going to um, be critical to how we look back at, at the energy transition and what it meant is um, there's this overlapping or intersecting uh, of several technologies that's now happening and and when that has happened in other areas uh, just think of smartphones or whatever it, it has had this massively disruptive effect where it's not just one technology that, that reaches a certain level of maturity it's, it's several and I think for solar especially solar behind the meter or local solar. Uh, this is now true of the intersection between solar and, and battery storage and intelligence um, and, and, and to some extent general Internet of Things, uh, the, you know, the, the, the ability of, of all kinds of energy using hardware to start communicating. So this might not be uh, the defining, it, it might not define the energy transition next year, but I think if we look back at it 10 years from now, this is really the defining thing where the local grids become so intelligent so that you you have this intermittent power source like solar but then you have battery storage of various kinds and then you have a strong intelligence that that just uh that, that just um, drives the dispatch and 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 um, the management of this and that intelligence probably links into all kinds of other energy consuming assets that have some ability to act as a as a as a battery themselves so, you know can there's a certain variability to when you have to run the freezer at full uh, speed or when you have to charge the EV or whatever. 
and just get that intelligence together uh, suddenly you have the nucleus of something that's that is the new grid it's it's the truly decentralized uh, grid and, and it's, it's not going to happen without intelligence it just doesn't make sense but once you have the intelligence there it's i think that's very disruptive for the for the grid as a whole for the larger grid and that is the energy transition where do you see that intelligence now i mean do you think it's progressing nicely yeah i think so i mean like definitely people are building companies around that i mean you're on the stock market now you have uh, stem in the us and fluence uh, both did recent ipos and i mean there are two companies invested heavily in, in artificial intelligence uh, on the intersection between storage and, and intermittent power production so People are doing doing their job. People are creating companies around this. As with any disruption, it's going to happen in leaps and bursts. It's not a it's not a smooth uh, development. Suddenly, something is going to just break through, and everyone uses a particular uh, application, and and it just uh, things change rapidly. Um, yeah, no, I, I we're just bracing for that to happen. Um, while at the same time, and I think it's important for, for us to to realize in, in where we are, we're selling behind the meter solar to commercial customers in Europe. Uh, this is not a bottleneck to us today. So our customers really just want to buy solar. They want to save money with solar. Like they're actually not asking for intelligence or storage. They're not really particularly willing to pay for it. They think it's interesting. They like to talk about it and kind of understanding the trend. But it is not something today that's that's holding the market back. So... At the same time, we can we can look at the CNI, the commercial and industrial PPA market in, in California, for example, and, and talk to people there. And it's obvious that it has already uh, switched. Uh, they're selling much more than just solar power savings. They're actually sell, selling intelligence and, and, and resiliency of the site. And the solar plus storage is becoming almost a backup solution to the site. So, yeah, it's like the old saying that the future is already here. It's it's just very unevenly distributed, as usual. It's in California. It's not in the rest of <laughs> the world. Where do you see a light in the future? Where where do you see the company going? Where where would you like to see it expand? You know, let's say 15, 20 years down the road. Give me kind of an idea of what a light is. We're squarely focused on being the number one leader of solar power for commercial and industrial companies. Uh, in Europe, to start with, I mean, I can see us being, you know, having a global ambition over time, of course, if you if you really draw out the lines. But in the foreseeable future, it's Europe. It's a, it's a massive market in its own right. So I'd like any commercial and industrial customer who start thinking about solar power, I'd, I'd like for them to, you know, I'd like this the first name that just comes across the, 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 the radar screen. It's like if you're looking at, you're looking at buying a database. You start by thinking about Oracle, and then you and then you figure out who the competition is. And, and I'd like for any company thinking about solar power to just go like, okay, Alight has done a fantastic job in this. You know, I'd like to talk to them, and then let's see who else is, is out there. Um, because that would mean that we truly lead the market, that we truly build the market, that we truly created something strongly commercial out of solar. Um, and it's such a deep market, right? Because it's not the market for solar, it's a market for power. And the power market is, is probably the deepest uh, commodity market in, in the world. Um, it's a, whatever it is, $3 trillion market globally, and, and not a not a small chunk of that sits in, in Europe. Um, so probably, you know, we could just stay. <laughs> it's such a depth in the market that just staying in that, really building that entrenched position and using using all the enhancements that will come to solar like the storage and intelligence to to make it constantly a better product like a truly great product for commercial users is enough is enough of a challenge to keep a company busy forever i would think at least for the next couple of decades so um yeah that is my simple 
simple vision for for light uh, and and where we're going. And lastly, I'll ask you: How do you see the energy transition progressing? I mean, obviously, you have coming out of COP twenty six a lot of commitments, some specific, some not, but it's really an accelerated energy transition. And and a lot of people have come out and said we don't see it being that rapid. I mean, are you more of the the mindset that let's continue to build it out? It's going to be a little bit longer lead time and, and do it the right way. Or, or do you see the opportunity now to hit really hard and hit some of those metrics and timelines that have been laid out for us? Yeah, I mean, so it's like one of the key challenges of our generations is just do this quickly enough. We just know it's, I mean, you look at climate change, what is climate change based on? It's based on CO2 emissions mainly. There are other uh, aspects, but the main aspect is CO2 emissions. Where do CO2 emissions come from? Well, they come mainly from energy. And what can we do to fix it? Well, we can build out, that's the energy transition. We can build out renewable power sources, period. So it's like, it's the challenge of a generation. And 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 the only way to fix the challenge and to live up to that challenge is to build stuff. Like, there's, it just doesn't matter if we come up with more in, 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 intelligent uh, digital applications and, and nice reports or whatever. Ultimately, we just have to build capex like stuff like you know steel and glass and 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 uh lots of lots of polysilicon and uh storage and wind etc it's there's no uh there's never going to be a shortcut around that uh, and it's always going to be messy to build a lot of stuff uh, you're held back by everything by permitting by like society generally accepting that you build a lot of stuff everywhere by material shortages like that's that has to be the name of the game it just has to be because it is physical stuff and capex so uh, long, long story short, I think that there will never be a smarter answer to the energy transition than to just crack on with it and just build stuff as quickly as we can. But of course, that's where we have to be smart. We have to find the business models that help us build the, the things as quickly as possible. The good news is the focus on the energy transition. I've just seen such a difference in my discussions over the past just five years. People are uh, recognizing it and are focused on it and and realizing that this is something that's real and, and that we should all be a part of. And so I think the momentum behind it has been really helpful. Th- that's my concern. I mean, you mentioned disruption to the grid. I mean, you don't want to lose that momentum because right now there's so many forces and, and, and governments and, and smart people behind it that you just don't want to lose that momentum for whatever reason and just have it well thought out. And, and you bring up a, a great point on on making sure that there's no disruption on the grid. Yeah, no, I very much agree. Um, these last couple of years has been all about, you know, this this is now the mainstream idea in society. We need an energy transition. It's it's based in COP26. It's just based in the insight that we don't really have an alternative. Um, so, yeah, let's get on with it. That's, uh... Yeah, and it's nice to see that money's flowing into the, into the sector now too as well. And that's obviously, as you know, being heavily CapEx, particularly on the front end, that's critical. And the fact that you've got much more uh, money behind it uh, is great. But Harold, listen, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. A light seems like it's got a, a great business model and uh, should have a lot of success going forward and expansion, hopefully, you know, here in the U.S. But really appreciate the insights and the time today. Yeah, thank you, David. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. Really nice uh, discussion. And uh, yeah, looking forward to hear the episode.